The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 144. Nepal has the densest concentration of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, with seven located within a 10-mile radius in the Kathmandu Valley. Bonus, it's also the only country with a non-rectangular flag. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is a man who not only knows his way around the mountains of Nepal, but also knows his way around a Nepalese restaurant. My good buddy and host of the Zero to Travel Podcast, Jason Moore. Hey, Trav. How you doing today, man? Wait, aren't you the guy who also co-founded Location Indie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that. I We're thought actually... I saw you in some funny rap, <laughs> fake rap videos. That was so much fun shooting. We got to give props to your wife, Heather, for putting up with us during that epic long photo shoot we did at that mansion you guys were house sitting in. Yeah, if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, you can head to locationindie.com. That's our new joint project. We have a very goofy video on the front right there on the homepage for you guys to see. So if you want to spend three minutes kind of laughing at us doing goofy things, go check that out. Also, if you're in Boulder, Jason has introduced me to a fabulous Nepalese restaurant called Sherpas. Yeah, it's it's the best. I mean, they got a huge, gorgeous patio, a great story behind uh, the owner, and it's just delicious food, and I think some of the best chai tea I've had anywhere. Yeah, and their lunch specials is like seven fifty for basically a feast. And as Jason mentioned, the owner came from Nepal. He runs a adventure travel company here and then opened up a restaurant. Just does it right. I'll tell you a quick story because we went to this restaurant and, you know, you talk some of these places up before your friends come to visit you and you kind of set the bar a little high sometimes and you just hope you can live up to it. And I think in this case we exceeded because I kind of threw out there, well, let's go to the Sherpa's place. You know, it's a good Nepalese restaurant, great food. Travis and Heather absolutely loved it so much so that the next day we were going out to lunch and they both decided that they wanted to go to Sherpa's again. <laughs> yeah, and we're people who love trying out new restaurants. Right. And Jason was actually, you were trying to go to us like, no, wait, there's some other restaurants. You go, we're in Boulder. There's a lot of restaurants. We should try out these other ones. And we said, no, we're going to Sherpa's again. <laughs> it was just, it's so good. So if you're ever in Boulder, you got to try out Sherpa's. Really cute restaurant. Awesome Awesome food. So can't yeah. thank you enough for showing us. Ever since you came on and did the Destination Diaries Colorado episode where you actually mentioned Sherpa's as one of your favorite restaurants oh, in I? Boulder, yeah. I've been wanting to go. I forgot about that. Yeah, that was a fun episode. If you come to Boulder, I'm going to be here for quite a bit. So you got to reach out or look me up and I'll meet you at Sherpa's. I always need a good excuse to go there and get a bite to eat. That's the tagline. I'll meet you at Sherpa's. <laughs> Guys, today's episode is sponsored by our good friends over at Tortuga Backpacks. What's really interesting is we are talking today about trekking through Nepal with Jason because he did it. And what I always find funny, interesting, sad, I don't know, is that whenever I see travelers out there, 
not hiking, not trekking, but actually just traveling, you know, backpacking. They always have these top loading backpacks. So the ones that you, you know, top loading is just what you think it is. You open it up from the top. Basically, you have to pull everything out to get to that pair of socks at the bottom of your pack. And that's why I love my Tortuga because they make this backpack as a travel backpack. There's a difference between travel packs and what we would call, I guess, backpacks, traditional backpacks that you see backpackers wearing. Those are more for hiking, but no one made travel packs before a couple years ago. Yeah, it's quite spacious because we we actually laid some backpacks out the other day and we were you know, geeking out on travel and comparing things. And oh, that was fun. I was you know really impressed. Yeah, they open like a suitcase. So you open the front flap and then you can see everything in your bag. You're not just opening the top and ruffling around. That is by far the biggest piece of advice for anyone who's looking for a backpack. If you are using a backpack just for travel, we're not talking about trekking through Nepal here. If you're going traveling, you know, you're going through Europe, you're going anywhere, get a travel pack and make sure it's not top loading. It's going to save you so much frustration. So I love my Tortuga. You guys know that I use it all over the world. If you're interested in picking up a backpack, check out TortugaBackpacks.com. And of course, don't forget, use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capitals. That'll get you 10% off your order. So you can go pick up their Tortuga backpack. You can pick up their new Tortuga Air backpack, whatever it is that fits your fancy over there. They're even coming out with a day pack. So you want to check that out. So check out Tortuga Backpacks. Also, guys... You should check out Trekking in Nepal, right? Check it out. I guess I say that as in a funny way, like check it out. But what we're going to do today is Jason went trekking in Nepal for a month, something that I've always wanted to do. It was on your bucket list, right? It was one of your big dreams, right, Jace? Oh, yeah. It's been on my bucket list for a long time. I just remember so long ago when I first started traveling, I heard about this trekking in Nepal thing. I was like, this is a thing you can go do, a hiking into the mountains and stay at these tea houses, and we'll get into what all that means. But just the idea of walking around through the Himalayan mountains was something, as somebody who loved hiking, got into it when I started traveling, I was like, wow, it's just such a cool way to travel. And again, we're going to touch in on a lot of this stuff during the episode. It was on the bucket list. And then there was uh, some political uprisings. Maoists took over the country and there was a communist uprising. It was a very dangerous place to go for a long while. People were still doing it. But it was definitely a, a pretty big risk, particularly when you go trekking, you get off the beaten path, so to speak. I mean, these treks, obviously, people are on them, but you are out there. You know, I mean, yeah, you're, you're in the wilderness in, in a different way, I guess, because you're amongst villages and people. So you, you could be days or weeks away from hospital care or police or any type of, you know, organized governmental system where if there's an uprising like there was with the Maoists, you know, you're putting yourself out in a situation where you could get in a lot of trouble. So I decided to, you know, just avoid that and table that bucket list item for a while. But knowing that I was going to revisit it at some point and finally got to do that just uh, this past year in the fall. Yeah. And so I'm selfishly very excited because we actually started talking about trekking in Nepal. I was kind of picking your brain the other day about it. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's wait on this because I want to interview you. I want everyone else to hear this. I want to come at it from the point of, I don't know much about it. I know it sounds cool. And so, you know, I'm a novice. I'm picking your brain of someone who did it. If you're unfamiliar with Nepal, it's a pretty small country in between Northern India. So India is to the South and then Tibet in China is to the north. So it kind of sits right in there in that little corner and it's known for its mountains. You know, that's where Mount Everest is. All the highest peaks in the world are in Nepal. So to give you a little bit of background, they also have what I consider the world's coolest flag. 
Yeah, their flag's really awesome. It's unique, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's uh, two little pennants. It's like it's basically two triangles on top of each other. Yeah. So check out their flag. So let's get into actually trekking in Nepal. How did you decide on Nepal? Like, why were you going to Nepal to do trekking? Yeah, I mean, again, it was on the bucket list for a while, and I have a particular love for the mountains and. That style of travel is completely unique. You know, if you think about, okay, I'm going backpacking, I'm staying in hostels. Okay, you can take that. If you have to categorize it, you can take that as a style, you know, staying in hotels or doing Airbnbs. There's all these different ways to travel, right? And this stuff we talk about on our podcast. But there's something very unique about the idea of just walking into the mountains and going into villages where people are just living their lives. And that is the only way to travel. I mean, you do have... Now, where I went trekking, you have some mule trains and different things like that, but nobody's riding mules. It's more for carrying in supplies. There's no road. You can't drive in. The mode of transportation is your feet. You just get onto a path that's probably been there for hundreds or thousands of years, and you walk village to village, and you just live in these villages along the way and you walk through the mountains. So it's this interesting combination of submersion into a culture and being active. If you like active travel, you obviously got the physical component and just being within that culture and also the adventure of being, I don't want to say off the beaten path, but just traveling in that different way where you're away from more of, it's not, not civilization, but more established areas. Right. So when you go to a Paul, I guess most people fly into Kathmandu, which is the capital city. Yeah. Depending on where you go trekking, Everest Base Camp is obviously a very popular trek. It's on a lot of people's bucket list. I want to go to Everest Base Camp. I want to see Mount Everest. And then you can take a flight actually from Kathmandu to uh, an area that is close to where that trek starts. You could actually walk from Kathmandu and you're extending your trek for a lot longer. But for most people, they like to travel or trek between two and three weeks then they'll take that flight and then start the trek a little bit higher up. There's other dangers there, getting at a high altitude right away and things like that. But you know, that's not the trek I did. I did the Manaslu trek. You want me to kind of go over yeah, some of the main... Let's go over what you did. How much time were you away? Where did you trek? And then let's kind of go over the options with trekking and why you actually decided to do the one that you did versus some of the uh, more popular ones. I should note, before we get into all this, I got to give mad props and just thank yous to my guide. And I'm going to explain why I think it's important to get a guide. And I'm in favor of that. It's not necessary. And you can make the decision for yourself. All of these are personal decisions that make up your travel experience, like anything you do. So if you personally decide to stay in a hostel, it's going to be a different experience than if you stay in a chain hotel, for example. Maybe that's the two opposite comparisons. But I want to say thanks to Samir. And I just want to throw out his email address to anybody that's looking to trek in Nepal. Let them know Jason Moore sent you and you know he'll be excited to to take you around because he's an excellent guide and is and we'll put this in the show notes. Of but course. it's uh, smt dot lama l a m a at gmail dot com. His name is Samir S M S A M I R. And the reason why I'm I'm just letting you know about him is because you know he was a huge part of my experience and taught me so much about it Nepal. It can make yeah. or break your trip, right? Yeah. I, I would assume, having not done it, that you're with this guy for an extended period of time. If they're good, you're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, and that's why if you're going to go the route of the guide, it's important to take your time in the selection and the process, and we'll get into that. But I'll give you an overview on on the treks. And there, All right, so the thing about trekking in Nepal is it could be 
whatever you want it to be in a sense of there's mountains with villages everywhere throughout the country, right? So if you no re- shortage of mountains yeah. or villages, if you really wanted to get off the beaten path and go to places where nobody goes, you could go somewhere and find a local or hire a guide or a local and that, but trekking might not even be a thing, you know, and just get somebody to take you out to a village that's far off and you're essentially trekking. You know, we chose to do a trek, the Monaslu Trail, which is called the Monaslu Circuit, and that's M A N A S L E U, I believe. Yeah, I don't want to misspell that. Gosh, that would be bad. For the reason that it's, it's a little bit less popular and less populated in terms of travelers and trekkers. So the main popular treks, I would say, is Everest Base Camp, just because it's Everest Base Camp. Uh, You have the Annapurna Circuit, and those are like the two main ones that most people do. And then I would say... Is the Everest one the main one because it's Everest and everyone wants to say, I saw Mount Everest. Yeah. And for Annapurna as well, it's the views, you know, they're known for being very scenic and they're very established. They've been around for years. So things that are more established like that obviously means more amenities and it means it's easier to get there. There are more people servicing those areas. It's less expensive. So all these factors that play in and then obviously just being a destination over the last many years, people hear about it more. Right, so. like I, obviously everyone listening, I assume knows Mount Everest. Yeah. Now, we're, and when we're saying Everest Base Camp, we're not talking about hiking to the top of Everest. <laughs> Fill them in on what that means because I think, you know, some people mm-hmm. listening are like, you can go to the top of Everest? Well, like, yeah, you can. That's <laughs> yeah. a whole different ball game, though. Yeah, we actually saw the Manas. Manaslu is one of the 8,000 meter peaks. So there's 14 peaks in the world that are 8,000 meters or higher, and I believe eight of them are in Nepal. So it's very concentrated, very scenic, and very impressive. If you haven't seen the Himalayan mountains, it it really is unlike any other mountain range I've seen. They're just so big, you know? It's And even when you're at altitude, you're still looking up, and it's just... I mean, you're talking about an 8,000-meter peak is is almost over over five miles above sea level. It's right. like, think that's insane. You know, it's just so insanely large. So uh, one of the reasons we chose our track in particular is because it was less established, but there were still some amenities. There were some lodges to stay in. There's some type of system, but it wasn't as popular as the Annapurna or the Everest Base Camp. You, oh, sorry, your original question was, what is Base Camp? Base Camp is essentially the area at the base of a mountain where you gear up to climb the mountain. And in, in the case of Everest, it's kind of a special area, I think, because it's such a high mountain and obviously the tallest mountain in the world, most popular. There's some infrastructure there where climbers meet. There's a village there. There's a bit of a scene. It's just a thing to do. I can't speak to it. I can only speak to it based on what I've read and what I've heard. I chose not to do that. I, I wanted to in a way because it would have been a cool thing to do. But I opted for this one and just to give you, I mean, you're listening to this, you're thinking about, hey, I might want to do this someday. Annapurna, when I was looking into it, was the original trek I wanted to do when I got interested in trekking in And Nepal. I had heard of that one too. Not knowing much about trekking in Nepal, I had heard briefly of Annapurna. I knew of Everest, I knew of Everest Base Camp, and I had heard of Annapurna. I didn't really know what it was, mm-hmm. but I think that gives you an idea that you know, it's somewhat known in the minds of of people. Mm -hmm. It's a circuit trek, which means it goes in a a circular route. And before we actually went to Nepal, a couple weeks before, there was a big tragedy on the Annapurna circuit. These were 
two reasons why. It wasn't because we were trying to avoid the tragedy, but they had built a road on the Annapurna circuit. So there are parts of the track, apparently, where Jeeps and buses are driving by. So we didn't want that as part of our trekking experience. Now, is that new? The road? Relatively new. I'd have to do a little research to tell you exactly when they started building it, but it didn't exist 20 years ago, or I don't even know if 10 years ago. But, you know, we didn't want to have that experience where you're you're walking and all of a sudden a Jeep comes rumbling by. That kind of that kind of stinks, you know? So it is more built up in terms of infrastructure, but I would rather take my chance and do something a little bit more away where I don't have to encounter any I don't want to see a vehicle. I don't want to go to trekking in Nepal and see a vehicle when I'm walking for two weeks or three weeks or however long that is. So that was one of the main reasons why and also are going to be I was willing to put up with, not put up with, I'm fine with less amenities, less comforts in exchange for a more maybe authentic experience and a less crowded place. With the tragedy you were mentioning, I believe, what, 50 hikers died? The last count, I think it was, it was almost 50. I think it was like 43, 21 of which were trekkers. It's scary. You have to think, we were talking about this in, in the car the other day and we were driving around. You think, you know, this is a common thing. A lot of people do it, and it is. And and the chances of something happening might be pretty small, relatively speaking. I mean, we're talking about getting in your car and driving somewhere. You're taking a risk. So it's not meant to scare people off. But when you're dealing with nature, you can't forget as established as these things are, and you see the guidebooks and you hear about people trekking in Nepal, you're still walking up to uh, like the high pass for the Manaslu and for Annapurna over 17,000 feet. When you're over 17,000 feet, anything can happen, you yeah. know? Mother it, Nature has never lost a battle, right? Yeah. In this case, it was a cyclone in India that had made its way up. I don't know if it was at the last second or the weather reports didn't get out in time or what, but it, it basically turned into a snowstorm and when it hit the high Himalaya and just dumped crazy snow and left people dead, stranded, and, you know, just completely took them off guard. I mean, Annapurna is a very popular circuit. So if you don't have a guide, you don't know how to read the Himalayan weather. You're just coming from another country, probably. So, yeah, you have to respect Mother Nature and understand that, you know, things aren't going to always work out the way you want. So I would say if you're planning a trip to Nepal and you're looking into trekking options, consider these three options. And another one I'd throw in is Sum Valley, which was broken off from Manaslu Trail. And that's more of a probably Buddhist culture oriented trek and where you can stay in people's homes. And that's even more rustic than than the one we did. So in terms of popularity, it would go Everest Base Camp, most popular, Annapurna, a close second, maybe, and then Manaslu, the third most popular, but a distant third. Yeah. In terms of when we're recording right now, I would say, but it seems to be growing in popularity after being on the trail out there. They are building lodges. It seems to be more infrastructure coming in. And obviously there already is some infrastructure there. So it's, um, it's growing. I, I would get there sooner than later. <laughs> gotcha. So physically then, what should people prepare for? Because you don't just hop off a plane and say, I'm going to go hike. Or, or maybe you can. I don't know. You tell me. I, it seems to me if you're going 17,000 feet and you're hiking for two, three, four weeks at a time, that maybe there should be some preparation? Yeah. It, it will enhance the experience if you have some level of fitness. That being said, we encountered plenty of people that didn't have a level of fitness that, that appeared to be 
you know, trek worthy, I guess I would say, to put it nicely. And that's okay. You know, when it comes down to anything, I think a lot of times it comes down to your your mental state, your mind, how you push yourself. And depending on how you book the trek, we can get into this in a second, you might be able to even control how far you go in a day and, you know, what pace you want to be at because you can hire a guide and you can hire them and pay them per day. So say you're an older couple and you want to take it easy and you want to wrestle on the way, we just, you could just keep paying them every day. You know, you can kind of go at your own pace or you can push yourself as much as you want. And this is where we can get into the discussion of like a guided track versus a group track versus an independent track. Definitely. That's one of the main questions that I had because, you know, a lot of people are going to say, uh, they they want to know what the experience is. Like, should I have a guide? Is it a better experience? Is it worse? Is it worth the money? You can also get porters. I know who can carry your stuff. So why don't we get into that? I mean, your personal recommendations, you had a guide and a porter with you. So it was only two of you, right? You and your wife. Yes. And you had one guide and one porter. The porter carries your stuff. The guide tells you where to go. Yeah. Guides you. Imagine that. <laughs> so what was the decision oh, we're going to get a guide versus we're not going to get a guide. Oh, we're going to get a porter versus we're not going to get a porter. Mm -hmm. This is the one of the things I'm really excited about sharing because like anything else you do when you travel or, or in life, you learn so much in the process, right? So I'm really happy with the, what we decided. And in hindsight, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I wish I decided to do it this way because maybe it would, but you'll never know. So you just yeah, be grateful like, for what. Or like it was, it, well, this was okay. I'm glad we did it, but I think it could have been better this way. Yeah. You're saying... I'm pretty sure this was the best way for us to go about it. I'm glad we did it this way, but I still think I could have saved some money and travel will relate to that because we can always lament, you know, oh, maybe I could have asked this. lost pennies. Yeah, I could have asked this one more question or gotten that one more discount or questioned that one more thing. And when you get into the situation where you're actually purchasing and, and going through that process, because there is a business transaction involved when you're getting guides and, and everything like that. So at some point, you got to sit down, agree on a price and have them take you out there. Think though, when you hire a guide or a porter or anybody, you're taking them, them away from their family for weeks. Now, of course, they're doing a job and they're happy to do it because for a lot of these guides, that's the time of the year when they make the most money. Speaking of times of year for trekking, before I break down the guided group independent thing, the main high season would be October, November. And as you get into November, it's, it's pretty clear because October, you're coming out of the monsoon season. And then mid-October, it's starting to really, you know, ramp up and get ideal. And then as you get later in November, it's, it's very clear in November. But in theory, although that's when the tragedy happened in late October. So it, you never know. But generally, the weather is pretty clear. And it's just a little, maybe a little colder. And then you got the second season or another season, I should say, which is in the spring. So you're talking like March, April, May or somewhere around that time. The other times, like those in-between times that you didn't mention, could you hike it then? Or is it actually like you can't do it because of the weather? Is it just worse and you still can well, do it? All right. I'm talking from the traditional Western perspective because I suppose in the winter, you know, you start a lot of treks at a lower altitude. So when we started on the Montesluge Trail, we started from this village called Argut. And it was so hot. I mean, we were sweating like crazy and, you know, wearing like had our pants pulled up. You could have been wearing shorts and, you know, wiping the sweat off our brows. And in theory, in the winter, I mean, you, sure, if you want to just say, hey, I just want to experience village life for a few days, you could just trek in for a few days and come back. The reason why we're talking about seasons is because most people on these circuits, like the Montesluce circuit, 
want to complete the circuit, and that involves going over a high pass of 17,000 plus feet, 5,000 plus meters, and you're not going to do that in the winter. You're not getting over the pass. So what is typically the time frame to do these circuits? The one I did about two weeks, and you can add in, I guess I'd say two weeks and some change, because if you want to have rest days, there's one particular village where you could you could take an extra day off and hike to the Tibetan border, which is like would be a really cool side trip, you know? So you can build in rest days or, you know, lounge days if you want and make it longer. Another thing you do is sometimes you can stem off of tracks you're doing. Like, for example, if you get over the pass in Maslow, you could actually, we met a group of German girls that were planning on doing this, but they didn't make it over the pass is get on the other side of the pass and then dip off, hike to the Annapurna circuit and then do the Annapurna circuit as well. Those ones happen to be close enough that you can do that, but it depends on where you're going in the country. So for trekking, you can definitely get your fill of walking for as long as you want. And then let's get get back to the Porter Guide. I won't let you miss that because I know that that is one of the biggest questions because people listening are like, oh, this sounds cool. Usually, I doubt many people are like, this doesn't sound cool. And if they think it's cool, then the question becomes... How do I do it? Do I do it with a guide? Do I do it with a porter? And how can I save money when I'm doing it? So why a guide? Why a porter? Make the case for why, I guess, because you did it, or even, you know, who might want to consider not getting a guide or a porter? Yeah. And before I get into this, I, I feel like I feel like there's one thing I haven't covered that I should have talked about a little bit more in the beginning, and that's just how great this experience is. You know, we're getting into a lot of the practical stuff, which I think is really great and really important. And this is the, these are the, all the questions I had when I was trekking. And that's one of the reasons why I took like a ton of audio when I was trekking. And I'm trying to compile these, these files because I'm going to release a Trekking in Nepal series. And it's going to go over a lot of this stuff. And, and we're going to talk about a lot of it today. It's so much, it's overwhelming, and you get there, and you're like, well, I have to plan this and that. You just want someone to kind of tell you what to do, yeah, in essence. Yeah, but I mean, don't lose sight of the fact how incredible this experience is, and what you're, what you're working for, what you're spending your money on. Well, you're seeing one of the most amazing regions in the world. Yeah, just, just the beauty, and really the highlight is the people of Nepal. They really are just incredibly warm people. It's one of the poorest countries on earth, yet... You just see the cutest kids and smiling faces and people are so kind and there's something about the Buddhist nature of people uh, there that just really even keel and friendly and it's just really good vibes, you know? And then just to be in a high Himalayan Tibetan village and, you know, share some tea with monks or, you know, see these beautiful multicolored prayer flags blowing in the wind that are tattered, you know, with the mountain backdrop. I mean, it's... If it's something you're even mildly interested in, trust me, you won't regret it. And most people I met, Trav, were plan- already planning either their second trip to Nepal while they were there, or they were back for their th- second or third or fourth. Actually, the most people I met had either been there before or were planning, they're talking about like when they're going to come back. Most wow. people, are, yeah. I mean, that, it's that, that kind of That kind of says it all because we, we all know that there's so many places in this world that we want to see. To go back to a place once twice, three times for it, you know, to keep going. That says it all because there's a lot of places to see and a lot of places to spend your money and a lot of amazing things. But Mm -hmm. when you know people are going back, there's something special there. Yeah. So let me break down the the guide porter situation. So like Travis said, the guide's essentially guiding you and the porter is like hired help that can carry your stuff, which some people might have a moral dilemma with. And it's something I read up about a lot too, because I'm like, well, I can carry my own stuff, you know, and why would I hire a porter? But then, That would be my 
first inclination as well. Yeah. Maybe it's because we're guys. Oh, yeah, like, oh, I don't want to spend the money or whatever, but you have to think there are a lot of people out there that really appreciate that work. And you are in the position, whatever you're paying them through the agency that you hire them with, you're in the position to leave them a big tip or take care of them in some way or just, you know, give them a good experience as well, you know, and not just have them working for you, but have them uh, essentially a part of it and treating them with respect like you would anybody else you hire. And that's, these are important things, you know, don't think of it as just, oh, I'm hiring somebody to just carry my stuff. I mean, you're giving somebody a job, you're contributing to the local economy, you, you could be feeding somebody's family. So there's all these different elements that go into it. And that was the tipping point for me. I'm like, that's really cool. There were two reasons why we hired a guide. So this will start with guide versus no guide because you can do the Annapurna circuit without a guide. You don't legally need a guide. The one we did, you legally need a guide to take you. What about the Everest base camp? Uh, I'm not sure. I'll have to look into that. I think you can do that on your own as well. And you can do it on your own because navigation-wise, oftentimes the path is just going in one direction. So it could be pretty tough to get lost, although you could get lost. But having a guide for us was a chance to really have somebody from the local culture teach us about the people, be able to interact with somebody from Nepal and just to, to show us the area and like learn about their country. And that's the big benefit of having a guide, not to mention safety. You know, uh, the agency we went through did not lose anybody on that tragedy because they were able to communicate with their guides and call in the fact that this storm was coming as opposed to people doing it on their own. Well, they don't have, yeah, no Any, one's there to call them. Yeah, it's or, up to their own devices of like, should we go over this or not? And I think you made a good point. A lot of times, I mean, you might even be experienced. If you've never been to the Himalayas before, you haven't been, a, you haven't grown up there, you're not going to know what looks okay and what doesn't look okay. Yeah. And there's probably somebody listening who's done it on their own and had a fantastic experience. And that's totally cool. You know, I mean, it's totally doable and people do it all the time. It's just what I wanted to experience was having that interaction with somebody on a daily basis. So you have the the three types of treks, I would say, which is independent, which is what we just discussed, which is, hey, I'm going to get my backpack. I'm going to take the bus to Annapurna Circuit, you know, starting point, and I'm just going to walk and do my thing. There's the guided trek where you can kind of work through agencies to find. I should warn you, there are going to be people on the street that are going to come up to you and like, ask you if you want to go trekking and say they're a guide. I mean, every, everybody's a guide. We actually met a German couple who was really nice who hired a quote-unquote guide, and he was just ill-prepared. I mean, he just basically said he was a guide because you know when you have no money and you're trying to feed your family, well, guess what? I'm a guide. Right. You know, um, and if you grew up there, I guess you're a guide, right? Yeah. So you want to work with agencies to kind of hire a guide through a reputable agency and they can help you find the guide. Doesn't mean you have to buy like the package tour from the agency. You're just finding the guide through them and the porter through them. You know, you mentioned Samir in the beginning and I, I'm always a huge fan of using recommended people like who have had good experiences like a lot of you know have used Bumti as we've talked about if you go to CM Reap as your driver like that's always awesome and and a little more magical with the travel experience but how did you know where to even start like with looking for a guy yeah that's that's a whole process and that's one that can wear you out when you arrive let me just finish this third point on types of treks and then I'll go back and answer I keep jumping no it's okay I'll go back and answer that question because it's a great question I would just say if you want to hire a guide, the people that might fit into this camp that would enjoy that experience 
One, I, I'm maybe I'm, I'm obviously speaking from personal experience, but I was with my wife, so a couple. When you hire a guy and a porter, you can make all of the decisions on kind of what you want to do. Because the third tier is the group, the group trip, like the group. I'm like, there's 10 people, nobody knows each other, and you're just paying in to buy into this group. Now, that has the advantage of being cheaper because if you're going with 10 people, well, they're going to set something up. Obviously, there's more division of the costs, although they, business-wise, they might upmarket a little bit. Sure. But you know, then you're going to be hiking with you know maybe your buddy and then eight random people, which means there's the group dynamic. It could be great. It could be right. awful. More uh, cheaper, but I would rather pay more money and kind of be like, no, let's, let's, yeah, let's leave at 7.30 tomorrow instead of 7 or, yeah, let's stay here instead of there and like it's just you and your partner. You have or, control. Yeah, you have control. For somebody by themselves, it could be very easy to arrive in the country if you're a solo traveler and just hook up with somebody like that's a, or meet a friend and just split a track with, with somebody and still keep it small by hiring a guide and porter. For me, I wouldn't want to do a group trek even if it was more... Uh, I guess, more inexpensive. Would you consider doing a group trek if it was six or eight or 10 even of people that you knew? Or even would that be a little, uh, I feel like that might constrain oh, it a little I, bit. I would. I've actually, I, you know, I'll throw this out there. Why not? Because this is what we do. I've considered, I've been talking to Samir and, you know, it is possible to arrange a group trek. So one thing I've been thinking about doing in 2015 is is trying to see if we get enough people to take a small group to Nepal to go on a trek and and give you know give this experience and share it all together. So uh, if that's something you're interested in, you can you can always email me to Jason at zero to travel dot com. I don't know if there's interest there, but uh, yeah, I would love to take a group group out with this guide and and show people around, and it, it would be a great thing. To answer your question. Yeah, I would consider that. I would consider that. Just maybe not a group of strangers. I just don't want to deal with that group dynamic when I'm on a trip like that, you know? So then there are two other types of trekking within those categories, and that would be camping or staying in lodges, tea house trekking. They're called tea houses because they all serve tea, basically. I wouldn't recommend camping treks unless you're going to a real remote area or you're doing some climbing or something. It just doesn't seem to serve a point to me. You know, we were on the trekking trail. And you're and someone said, who loves camping. So ah, I love take camping, this for yeah. what it is. I mean, Jason actually has camped even when he's at a home in Colorado, like camped for two weeks out in the mountains just to do it. Yeah. And I, I, you would see camping groups and they have all the gear and they have the cooks and you're staying in the tents, but you're, A, you're, you're usually camping right outside of like a lodge or something. You're, you know, like I said, you're usually not in a remote area. You're you end up in some kind of village and you camp somewhere in the village. So why not just stay in a tea house where it's like five bucks a night or whatever, and you can actually go in and have some warmth, (laughs) not have to wait for your dinner. I mean, you still have to wait for your dinner to be cooked, but I mean, there's just, it just doesn't seem, I don't know. It didn't seem like it was the value was worth it. Why save a few, a few dollars? I I don't, you don't necessarily even save. It's just a different, you're just buying a different experience, but I've camped enough, so I understand what the experience was, even though I didn't live it on the trekking trail. And I would just stay in the tea house lodges because that's an experience that's unique to Nepal, where camping is an experience you can have anywhere. Now, what about the individual trek, like without a guide? I mean, you said you could do it on Annapurna. You might be able to do it at Everest Base Camp. Who are the type of people that should consider that? I mean, 
obviously it's going to be a little more dangerous. So you would think that someone should be somewhat experienced. I mean, would you consider doing it now that you've done it with a guide? Or even still, would you say, no, I think it's worth doing the guide? Well, now that I met Samir, I would just go with Samir every time. You you can relate to that. You know, I mean, if he was available. I can see the appeal. I can see the appeal of showing up and, and kind of doing it on your own. You know, I'm, I like to think I'm occasionally an adventurous guy and the idea of kind of just throwing the pack on and going. Uh, the reason why we hired, hired the porter, like I mentioned, is... You know, yeah, let's get in the porter yeah, versus non-porter. We, we liked all that stuff uh, that we were contributing somebody out with somebody out. But also, it's just nice to not have to carry your stuff. <laughs> and so he carried both you and your wife's packs. Yeah, his name is Mingmar, and he's he is like a superhero. I think he was under five foot tall. And just the strongest dude. I mean, like you hear about these guys from Nepal, like how strong they are and just how like legendary these these guys are. And it's it's true. I mean, this guy care I mean, I couldn't have carried what he carried for up the stairs. No, I don't think so, man. And you know, I felt a little bad at first, but at the same time, they were telling me, Oh, this is like way of a lighter load than he normally has. I was like, What? <laughs> Cause we tried to pack pretty smartly, you know. And I just couldn't believe what he was capable of. Just just his strength was was astounding. And when he showed up, I made the mistake of not asking the agency we hired the guide and porter through to make sure that he had the pro to ask to make sure that he had the proper gear. Whether they would have just waved me off and said, Oh, whatever. But he showed up and he he just had sneakers. And I was like, if we're going over this pass, this dude probably needs hiking boots, you know? So we made sure to get him some hiking boots, you know, before we, we left. So if you have to buy your porter some type of gear or something or like ask your guide and porter, you know, you got to think these guys and gals actually saw a group of girl porters uh, running a trip. They don't make a lot of money. It's a poor country. So just be aware of what you're in the position to provide and do what you think is the right thing to do to take care of people. And everyone listening will know that I'm very frugal and that Jason's frugal as well. And, and, but there are certain times, and this seems like one of them where, you know, a couple extra dollars here and there for us isn't a huge deal. I mean, if you have the money to go trekking Nepal, e- even if you're a really scrimping and saving as a backpacker, you probably have some extra cash to help these guys out. You probably have more than these guys. Let's talk a little bit about the costs associated with it. Cause a lot of people listening will think, all right, this sounds cool. What, Go through what some of your costs were. Like, how much is how much should people expect to pay a guy today? How much should they expect to pay a porter? What are the other costs associated while you're on the trail? Mm-hmm. It, the costs will vary a bit. If you do it independently, you'll definitely save money. You know, generally speaking, with guides, you're maybe talking about twenty five to thirty five dollars a day. You may be based on their experience or who you hire them through. For porters, you might be talking 10 to 20 bucks a day. I think that's what you're paying the agency to get them. So those guys might be making, I'm not sure, maybe they're making half that or a little bit under. There's some margin built in there. So bear that in mind at the end of the trip. If you can leave them a nice, generous tip, I think that's a great way to to pay back. And that it's a, it's a big, important part of their salary. And just speaking with Samir, as a guide, you pack in a lot of your year's worth of you know, what you make for your living in those, you know, trekking seasons, which might be only two to three months long. So you're pulling them away from your family and, you know, take take care of them. I, I, I recommend that. 
we actually paid the agency. This is where I think I screwed up. This is a big important point to make, and we could talk about you actually asked before, and I got completely sidetracked the process of booking the trek. There are plenty of places to book the trek before you go, but you can organize the trek when you arrive. Maybe you'll get a better deal, or at the very least, you'll be able to meet some people in person and see who you're comfortable with before you go out into the mountains with them for two or three weeks. You know, it's also important to be able to get along with that person because you're going to be together a lot, right? So I would not recommend booking the trip in Nepal if you're limited on time to pre-plan. We left like three or four days when we arrived in Kathmandu and there's the main tourist area called Tamal, which after like a day there, you're like, get me out of here. <laughs> and it's just, but there's tons of trekking shops. There are a lot of knockoff shops where you can buy gear and I can give some advice on that in just a second but you can go to the agencies and just talk to them find out who the reputable agencies are by looking in guidebooks by asking around by checking out some of the reviews online and narrow it down to a list of I would say three to five agencies and just go around and talk to them and set up uh, meetings with guides and then interview essentially meet with the guides and choose a guide based on on that. And that that's the best way to do it. Now, all that takes time. And then buying the gear takes time and getting ready to go and arranging the transportation. If you go through an agency, so we elected to pay the agency, I guess, extra money to just arrange everything. So it included like our transportation to and from the trail. And the guys were going to take care of the price we paid also paid for all of our food and all of our accommodations, which if we said we did that on our own, we would still hire the guide. I don't know. Chances are Samir probably would have just like hustled around and got places for us and made sure he did everything he did anyway. So we were kind of paying. We're just like, you know what? We don't want to think paying about... for the ease of mind. Yeah, exactly. Now, in hindsight, I think maybe I could have just paid for them to basically get our... Because you have to get permits for a lot of these places. The conservation areas require permits. You have to get your guide and you're going to obviously book places to stay and... and, and get food along the way is so, there any chance of you showing up somewhere in a place being full like did yeah you ever see that yeah okay. but there's multiple places so there's usually some kind of option but when we were debating about this i was like well let's just pay him to, to the sort of take care of everything option because although it would have been cheaper to take out my wallet every time we bought a meal or every time we booked a lodge and would have been maybe the same experience we would have to deal with money all the time instead we just paid him up front and samir dealt with it all and you'd have to worry like am i getting ripped off that's what i would feel you know a lot of times i'm thinking all right i'm going to negotiate i might be getting ripped off well so actually you- the cool thing is they have set prices okay so nepal's very smart in that way anywhere you go along the trail actually the prices can increase a little bit the higher you go in altitude but that makes sense because if you think i'm drinking this coke and but it took seven days for this coke to get here like you should pay a little more you know but it's never extreme like they could charge ten dollars for a coke and yeah what are you gonna do somebody would pay it yeah Yeah. but all the prices are fixed and they incrementally increase the higher in altitude you go on certain things and but they're still fixed at that price so that's a that's kind of a nice thing too you don't have to like do the haggling thing and if someone was thinking on the fence between i'm gonna take out my wallet every time and pay or i'm gonna pay this ease of convenience or this convenience fee to have the agency do it what would you say i would have an honest conversation with the guide and just find out 
how he handles things on the trail with his group. And there are, I can give you a few uh, basic tips on what types of questions to ask your guide. One, I would ask him what his record is. I mean, what is his experience on that particular trek? You know, and just confirm and verify that they have experience leading trips on that trek. Because like I said, a lot of people are guides or maybe new to guiding, but maybe they haven't done the trek that that you've done, you know? So you want to find out their experience, make sure you're comfortable. You want to get their take on safety and how they handle, you know, different situations. And you want to ask how they handle things on the trail. That, that would have been a, probably a good question for me to ask. Like, how do you handle, you know, when it's time to stop, how do you handle getting the room for the night? Is that up to us or do you deal with the money? You know, because you could, if you ask the right types of questions, like if I asked him that, he said, oh yeah, I just deal with the money and everything. Well, then I wouldn't have paid the agency this upcharge for him to take care of everything because of Samir's personality, such a great guy. I have a feeling he probably would have just taken care of everything for us anyway, which is where I think I made the mistake. And that's probably the only mistake I made. Maybe it cost me an extra, I don't know, three to 500 bucks. But what was the cost then of the whole? I think we paid about a hundred dollars a day on the trail for two of us. And that's dollars each or a hundred dollars total. Total. I believe I'd have to look at our receipt. That could be a little high. We had a guide. We had a porter. We paid for a Jeep to drive us there from Kathmandu. That was like an an all-day drive. You know what I mean? We paid for transportation back, all of our food, all of our meals, and all of the permits because you have to get the permits, and they deal with all of the permitting with the Nepalese government and everything like that. So it's, it's everything, if that makes sense. But I still think we paid maybe too much. But then when I look at it again, I was like, you know what? We are paying these guys to be out in the wilderness or out in into the high Himalayas with us for over two weeks. I mean, right? Where's the the trade off? I mean, so a hundred dollars a day. You went for about two and a half to three weeks. So if you're looking at that, you're looking between fifteen hundred and two thousand dollars for a, one of those types of trips. Yeah, but again, I'm pretty sure you can go cheaper. What then? Because we kind of touched on this a little bit, but packing. You said you packed light. If people are doing this, should they bring all their stuff from home? Should they buy stuff when they get there? Is the stuff that they buy when they get there good? Is it really crappy knockoffs? I mean, how should people plan for a trek like this? Because someone like me who's never done anything, like I, I have I have no clue. Mm-hmm. I love that you asked this because these are all the common questions that people have, including us. And I've been trekking in Patagonia. I've spent like three months in Patagonia trekking around. I've been I did, I've done the Inca Trail. You know, I've done treks around the world. So I do know the basic gear you need, but I still didn't know, again, if you can get it cheaper, why not get it cheaper and it still works? So here's some essential non-essentials, I guess. Trekking poles is not something maybe people would think about that they're used to hiking with a pole, right? Or two poles or like ski poles, but you just walk with them. I can't recommend trekking poles enough. Just to keep your balance going uphill, downhill, there's a lot of undulating trails, you're going up and down, and you can get a pair of decent trekking poles in Nepal and Tamal, this neighborhood in Kathmandu, for for like six bucks. And here in the US, they're like over a hundred bucks, you know? You could get a pair of gloves for like eight bucks. You could show up in Nepal from Bali or whatever with just your bathing suit and your t-shirt and get everything you need to trek probably for under a hundred bucks, right? Would it all be good? Would it be Gore-Tex and shed water perfectly? No. I mean, there's a lot of knockoff stuff. There's stuff that might be compromised. Maybe the pants you buy will rip after, you know, a week or whatever. I mean, these are the chances you take, but in theory, you can just show up and get 
absolutely everything you need very easily in Kathmandu. So bring what you have if you're coming from home that you're comfortable in hiking with. And whatever you might not have, I would consider buying there because you're going to save money. That's a very general rule. I mean, I could go like piece by piece of like all the things we had and well, give you know. people a little overview. Like, how many pairs of pants should they bring? Should they bring yeah. shorts? I'm I'm assuming no, but I yeah. mean, I well, know. this is where the question of the porter comes in because how much stuff are you carrying? If you're carrying your own stuff, you want to obviously have a light load as light as possible. If you have a porter. Don't don't rock them out, you know. I mean, <laughs> don't but, throw bricks in your bag. Yeah, but I mean, you can you can bring more stuff, you know. I could run down my packing list. Basically, just give us a quick yeah, give us a quick overview of it. Like how yeah. three pairs of pants, three shirts, a jacket. Is that too much? Should I bring a hat? Should I bring gloves? How cold does it get? Yeah, we can go layer by layer. So it gets cold up in the high Himalayas at at, at night. So you want to have long johns you know underneath your pants you want to have a good pair of technical trekking pants anything you would hike with you want to have a first layer on your top so like a long sleeve shirt or like a short even a short sleeve shirt that wicks moisture uh, so it's not made out of cotton you don't want to have cotton next to your body in general you want to have something that's made for outdoor sweating or for the gym it doesn't have to be like you go to your outdoor shop and buy some fancy thing you could maybe go to tj maxx or target and pick up something that's meant for sweating in that's not cotton do not put cotton next to your body because it it retains moisture and it'll make you cold so all the stuff touching your body make sure it's it's non-cotton technical gear and then you want to get layers. So I had like a fleece. I had a shell that was uh, basically for rain or just, you know, a little warmer jacket. I had an extra sweatshirt type of thing just to keep your core warm. Uh, obviously a hat, trekking poles, earplugs are nice for the lodges. I just had a toothbrush and toothpaste. You're going to smell. You're not going to need a lot. You can get a bar of soap. Uh, there's stuff you can buy along the trail. So if you run out of soap, if you run out of toilet paper, I would bring toilet paper because they don't use toilet paper. They use their hands in the squat toilet. So uh, you do want to get some toilet paper and have that with you. You know, a couple pairs of underwear, one cotton shirt I brought to sleep in. I just wear it. But you, I mean, you're going to smell. You're going to be dirty. You're not going to get a lot of hot showers unless you go, at least where I went, if you go on the more popular routes, that there's more hot showers and things like that. I'd be used to being a little dirty, you know? Did you bring a camera? What about electronics and keeping them safe? Were you ever worried about, or like, you know, breaking it or something? Yeah. One thing I like to do is I have a waterproof stuff sack. So I don't know. I'm a big I swear by stuff sacks. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's essentially a, just like a, a sort of a bag to keep your whatever in. So you, I, you know, keep your clothes in. As you can say, I'm going to take one sack and put all my underwear and socks in there. And then it's, it's red. So I throw it in my bag and I know, I know my red sack has all of, of that stuff. I know my blue sack has all of this type of stuff. You know, I know my waterproof sack that I carry in my day pack because you'll have a day pack with you because even if the porter's carrying your stuff, you're going to want to have like your camera, some extra clothes if you get cold, sunblock, you know, chapstick, some extra food, all the stuff that you want to have with you. If you have a waterproof sack, we didn't encounter any rain or snow, but you could, I like to put like my camera in there, my podcast recorder or whatever, and just put it in there. So even if it rains, say your day pack gets soaked, you have 
something in a waterproof sack that stays dry. A second layer. Yeah, so that's good. So you don't have to go crazy with your packing. If you forget something, you can get it there if need be. Yep, that's a general rule for packing that I love. I agree. Last question then, because I think people are a little interested in what it's like day to day, because you haven't really, like you said, we got, gave you a lot of logical information and in the logistics, and that's important because I know personally, I don't want to have to do all this research myself. So, Jace, you just gave us 50 <laughs> minutes of, hey, here's basically what you should do. But what about the day to day? Like, what is it actually like out there on the trail? And yeah. how long do you go? You know, do you stop wherever you want? I, I, all these type of, what, what's the experience itself like? Life on the trail. That's a, That was one of the reasons why I did a lot of recording because I wanted to capture life on the trail. And it's it's the reason you go, right? Uh, the last little tidbit I'll, I'll give in terms of uh, gear and stuff like that is, is the big question of water. You know, people might wonder, can you drink the water? That's a big concern. Most villages have a central water source, which is where people wash dishes and they get water to drink. Westerners can't really handle that water because it's coming off the mountain. And it seems pretty clean to me, but there's animals, there's, you know, you don't want to drink that water without purifying it. So you can buy something in town called Paiush. It's P-I-Y-U-S-H. It's basically chlorine that you just drop in your water. So you fill up a liter of water, so you have water bottles with you, which you can buy there for like 50 cents. That would be another example of an item that here costs $12, there costs 50 cents. It's an Nalgene bottle. It's fine. I don't care if it's imitation. It holds water, right? You drop three drops in and you wait 30 minutes and the water's fine to drink. So that's a great solution. And you can do that when you're in the hotels. You don't have to buy, don't buy bottled water, you know, if you don't have to, because you're contributing to like waste in the country and plastic. And this goes for anywhere you travel. You can avoid buying bottled water and purify water out of the sink, then better for the environment, you know. Day-to-day life in the trail, man, it's it's different all the time, which is what makes it cool because, you know, you get up, you meet for breakfast, you know, in, in the lodge. You can there are only so many things that you can eat. The menu, like I said, it's fixed and it's the same everywhere. It's very basic. At least the track I went on is very basic food. We ate almost the same three or four meals every day. We had oatmeal for breakfast with banana or oatmeal with honey. And then for lunch and dinner, we usually had dalbat, which is their national dish. 95% of Nepali people eat it twice a day. And it's always a little bit different, but it's basically a curried type of vegetable or or potato and then a rice and then like a lentil soup or like a bean liquid lentil type of thing that you can just pour over the rice and then they just bring you like unlimited rice and and you eat that like crazy so dal bot or like vegetable and noodles and samir was great because he he basically told us what to avoid so we didn't get sick we never got sick uh, avoid meats because they're coming in from Kathmandu, so you don't want to eat meats it's tracked in like you know, a week. Cheeses are usually from the city. So there's certain things they just don't make out there. They bring them from Kathmandu so tourists can have them, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're fresh or good to eat. So you want to be careful there. So stick with what the locals would eat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you get up, you have your breakfast and, you know, your porter loads up all your stuff. Yeah. And then you get on the trail and that's, it's just such a cool feeling. It's just such a great way to start your day because you just, you walk out of the village and you walk into the mountains 
and you're just seeing amazing views. You know, you're you're passing groups, other groups sometimes with tourists, depending on how well trafficked the trail is. And you just walk and you end up in different villages along the way. And as you go up, the villages change. You know, this village might specialize in making baskets. So then you arrive in that village and you're walking through and you just see people on the street weaving baskets or making baskets or whatever. And then you'll kind of pass through there and go to the next one. And then you'll pass through another village that has some other stuff going on and, and even different types of people, ethnically speaking. You know, there's different tribes and ethnicities and subcultures within the mountain region. So as you go higher up, you're getting to the more of the Tibetan Buddhist type of culture. And then lower down, it's it's different, and it's different in every area. So, really, trekking in Nepal is—I mean, literally on the trail—it's a cross section of Nepal. In the, even in that region, there's like different sort of subcultures in each place. So, you know, you stop and have lunch at some point during the day, and that's Do you usually, usually have it at a restaurant. Do you bring the food y- with you? Yeah, you usually have it. No, you usually have it at a restaurant. You, I like to bring snacks from the city because you're going to want to, you're going to crave some different things. So it's good to have some stuff with you because like I said, the menu's fixed everywhere. But yeah, I mean, we, I remember this one meal, Trav, we sat down, this woman cooked everything from scratch. I mean, we were there for like, you know, we were waiting for our lunch for like two and a half hours, but she was like literally peeling the potatoes, like boiling the rice, like just making everything completely fresh and it was so good. So it's like a relaxed pace on the trail. So you eat lunch and then usually after lunch, we would probably just walk two to four hours, you know, so you can walk anywhere between six and 12 hours a day, depending on your pace, what villages you're staying. And if you need to stop and acclimatize, once you get to higher altitudes, you can't go as high up as quickly. So you have to spend nights at altitude so your body can adjust. So it can vary a little bit, but then, yeah, you get in the evening, you have dinner relax a little bit and go go to your room and, and sack out and do it all again the next day. I assume at the end of the day, you're pretty tired. Sleeping, I assume you sleep very well while you're <laughs> trekking through Nepal. Yeah, I slept pretty good. But you know, where we were, the mattresses are pretty thin. We rented a couple sleeping bags in Tamal. So we rented them for about, uh, I think we negotiated both bags for $2 a day. So you don't have to show up with a sleeping bag unless you want to. If you do, you want to have more of like a winter bag because it gets pretty cold up top. But we use the sleeping bags like an extra mattress because the mattresses were were pretty thin, you know. It was fairly rustic, but um, I like it that way. You know, it makes you you appreciate what you have. And obviously, they're interacting with the people, the kids uh, you meet along the way. It's hard to encapsulate in words, but it's it's definitely something I highly recommend you do. So I think it goes without saying that if someone was to ask you, <laughs> trekking in Nepal, it's something I'm considering doing, you'd give it a big thumbs up. Absolutely. 100%. That's awesome. And Jason has mentioned a little bit during this podcast that he took a lot of audio files. So I'm, I'm excited because we're going to get to hold him to it now that he's put down in words on the record that he has these audio files because he'll be doing a Trekking in Nepal week at some point or a mini series on your podcast with all the sounds of what it was like to actually trek in Nepal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would literally take my recorder and I was like, okay, I'm walking into this village now and I would just walk through a village and just hold my recorder and capture the sounds of the village and a lot of ambient stuff like that. I interviewed Samir a ton because he has so much experience guiding all these multiple trails. So we talk about all these different trails. We talk about, you know, some of the the, the different things that you should know and, and some of the things about the people of Nepal that, that he teaches us and some cultural stuff. And it's a, a mix of all this stuff, which is maybe why it's, 
I know there's so much good stuff there from Samir and, and sounds I've recorded. And now I'm like, oh, I got to do this justice and put it all together in the right way. So I don't know how many episodes in the series there there's going to be, but I, I just need to chop it down and consolidate it and make it good for you all. So I hope I can do it justice. Yeah, we have really just scratched the surface of, of what it's like. I know it's hard when you travel to come back and and tell people what it's like, even when you have pictures, even if it's not just a podcast, even when you have pictures, it's so hard to to really, like you you said, do it justice. So I'm really looking forward to the to the mini series that you put together. And if you guys are interested, of course, check out zero to travel.com, the zero to travel podcast. Everything that we mentioned today will be in the show notes. So we'll definitely put Samir's number in there. We'll put his email address. I don't know if you have his phone number, but we'll put in all that information because personally, I always want some sort of recommendation, especially when it's such a close connection like that, like a guide. Yeah, and it's really hard because all of the hoops I just talked about that you jump through when you're looking for a guide is 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 challenging. So, you know, you have to take my word for it, of course. But if, if it's you're just like, you know what? I heard this guy's great. I'm going to go with it. Then I highly recommend Samir. Tell him Jason sent you. Send him an email and he'll, he'll, he'll sort you out. Yes, yeah, so you guys can get all that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. The show notes will be linked up there. Again, a big shout out to our sponsor, Tortuga Backpacks. You don't want to load your Tortuga too heavy if you're taking it to Nepal because your poor little porter is going to be struggling with it on his back. But that's why I like having a smaller pack, Chase, is you can only pack it so full. Yeah, that's true. It's a traveling light is it's so much better. <laughs> the best thing about having a carry-on size pack is the fact that it can only be filled with so much, right? <laughs> right? Like you force yourself to travel into it with a carry-on because it's that size. And you'll find that it's a lot easier than you think when you first start out. So tortugabackpacks.com, big recommendation from me. You guys know that. You can use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capitals, get 10% off. Jason, I'm going to give them two episodes from the archives. If they loved this, if they if they loved you talking about Nepal and the idea of trekking and this type of travel, you guys are going to want to check out episode 77. I bring on my sister, hmm. my twin sister, who told us everything that you need to know about hiking the Camino. Yeah, so cool. the Camino, which is the way of St. James, ends in Santiago de Compostela, Spain, a really famous, important pilgrimage Again, this kind of trekking. It's not the same as trekking at 14,000 and 17,000 feet, but this idea of really going slow and walking. I mean, you're walking from town to town and interacting with locals in such an amazing way. Mm, that sounds incredible. I got to give that a listen because that's that's on the bucket list a little bit. Yeah. And then episode 128, Jason, you were on again. We talked about taking a digital sabbatical because that was one of the mm. reasons that you did this trek in Nepal was so that you could... Get away from the internet and you could get away from work and all the stuff that day to day we sit there and we think, I got to do this, 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 and this. You can't do that when you're trekking through Nepal. So you came on and told us all about how your digital sabbatical went. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like I've now that it's been a while, I feel like I've slipped into some of those bad habits I lost, but I'm working on it. Yeah, do as he says, not as he does on <laughs> <Right>. episode 128. <laughs> and if you guys want even more travel podcasts, you know you can always head over to zerototravel.com. That's Jason's awesome site and his podcast. You can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, however you're listening to this. You'll see Zero to Travel there as well. Usually when you go onto the iTunes travel rankings, we're right next to each other. Yeah, I don't know I don't how know that how. happens, but uh, you know, Travis has been popping over there quite a bit too. So you might want to give some of our episodes together a listen if you enjoy these because we've been having a... I don't know. We've just been having a lot of fun doing this stuff, so we're going to keep it going. Yeah, and we mentioned at the top of the show, we have another fun project that we've been doing together, Location Indie. 
check that out. Our website kind of says it all, but it's for people who want to take their travel and their work to the next level. They want to lead this type of lifestyle. They want to be able to take a trek to Nepal for a month. And that's because they worked hard at their job before that. And they, they can live this location independent lifestyle. So we're doing a lot of cool stuff there. Location Indie, dot com. So you want to check that out as well. Yeah. If you, if you join up, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in there. Yeah. There's activity in our forum. <laughs> so Jace, thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate you sharing all your oh, expertise. Man. Selfishly, I couldn't wait to record this episode. You know what? It was my pleasure. You asked amazing questions the whole way through and, and you know, these are all the questions that people ask. So, I mean, you being the awesome host that you are, you hit on all the right hot topics when people are going tracking. So I hope it helps was... to be completely ignorant. <laughs> well, I just hope I did a good job explaining things and anybody can reach out anytime if they have any questions. Thanks, Jace. Thank you everyone for tuning in today. And until next time, happy, happy free, free travels. travels.